Hello, it's the Amy Beecher Show. It's January 9th, Happy New Year. 2018 wasn't the best, wasn't the worst, wasn't the best, particularly toward the end there for me. Back got a little rocky. You'll notice I wasn't posting much. It was a dark and busy time. Lots of family illness, lots of obligation. But again, wasn't the worst. I made it through. 2019 has started. And I'm excited. It's the beginning of the end of our president's term. It's the beginning of presidential hopefuls putting in their bids, right? The beginning of a new semester with uh, teaching, an opportunity to get humbled by my students' distaste for my enthusiasm. That's a constant. A return to my studio. I mean, that never really stopped, but it's always kind of fun to sweep the floor the beginning of the year. Oh, the beginning of of my marriage. That's not until June, so I have some time to make a run for it if I have to. That's a big one, though. That's a big beginning. And then the beginning of a new journaling hobby I'm doing. I'm doing morning pages. I think Carol Beauvais does morning pages. I read that, and I figured, all right, I'll do that, too. Oh, I'm so undisciplined. So there's a lot of optimism in my world right now. How about you? How are you feeling? I'm also scared about 2019. Let's be real. I'm scared of some of the same things that I'm excited about. I'm scared of what's that guy's name stepping down from his post in the justice department. He's overseeing the Russian investigation. Rosenstein, Rosenstein. I think it's a little scary that he's stepping down. I'm scared of, I'm scared of democratic hopefuls. I'm scared of Elizabeth Warren and, um, you know, the underperformance of the Democratic Party. I'm scared of New York City real estate prices. Uh, I'm scared of my landlord. Scared of my marriage. Eh, Not that scared of the studio, but, you know, fears lurking in any corner. Yes, it's a mix, I guess. It's always a mix. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to Tracy Mollis. She is a wonderful artist, painter, and thinker. She has a show up right now at Kai Matsumiya Gallery. It's in the Lower East Side. It's a series of maybe eight or ten paintings that are, um, I think there's some drawings in there too, and they're all based on this collection of slides that she received that Columbia University's library was offloading. I think she received them in, in graduate school. And it's not necessarily slides that she has, it's negatives of slides. So the paintings have, unsurprisingly, a negative quality to them. The tonal relationships are reversed. They're in black and white mostly, and they're of um, sort of archaic objects, Greek busts, a sort of ancient-looking pipe. And then, from the more recent past, dug up images of Rage Against the Machine. She's really interested in this video that Rage Against the Machine did in 2000. I think it's like 2000. It was directed by Michael Moore. I think it's called something like Sleep Now. Why wouldn't I do this podcast with notes? Why wouldn't I just write all these things down rather than like force myself into this sort of interesting guessing thrill? Will I be able to retrieve the information? Will I not? Yeah, it's called Sleep Now, I think. It's directed by Michael Moore, 2000, maybe the year 2000. Maybe it's even earlier, maybe 1998. 
Anyway, pre-9-11 and Rage Against the Machine, I'm getting it back to Tracy, just bear with me. Rage Against the Machine is uh, playing their song, their protest song in front of Federal Hall in the Financial Center in New York City. And basically, Michael Moore directed them to just keep playing no matter what. And it's this really sort of cliche, but also interesting image of Rage Against the Machine against the neoclassical architecture with a crowd forming that's at the core of this music video. And Tracy took a still from the music video. She painted it and positioned it with these old Greek objects. And suddenly, the ideas that get floated around in the space between them have to do with, I don't know, basically how archaeology is politically driven and how myths and meanings of certain objects and events change. I was particularly struck by the anachronism of the 90s up against the neoclassical architecture. And I started thinking about George Washington and that sort of impossible anachronism of George Washington up against the Greek columns. Anyway, it's a really fucking fascinating show. And I've been meaning to sit down with Tracy for a while. So here's our discussion. I've been meaning to take a shower, but the water is not working in our bathroom, so I'm just sitting here recording this. Uh, I'm going to go have dinner with my parents. It's, it's brisket and kasha. Yeah. Okay, you listen. I'm going to go get dinner. It's not crazy. So anyway, welcome. Thank you. I love seeing the show. Thank you. What's the name of the show again? It's called Eclipsing Your Lip Sing Incandescent. Eclipsing Your Lip Sing? Yeah. Like my lip sing? Yeah. Like read my lip sing? Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I went to a rhyming, a rap rhyming dictionary, actually. So it's more like the, I mean, it's more like the, um, the sounds that, you know, but it was also kind of like my ode to Antinius also. Right. And yeah. Tinius is a big part of this show. Yes. Yes. Supermodels. Yeah. Archaeology. Yes. Um, so we should get to the show, but um, I figured we'd do a little bit of bio talk. Yeah. You know, but I do really want sometimes to stay there and like within the first 20 years of someone's life. And yeah. um, I really do want to get to the show because there's so much I'm to talk that. about. And yeah. I think it's actually, it's a, sh- a rare show where, and this isn't about the work, but I think there's things to talk about where even if you haven't seen the show, it's not going to be like a total snooze. Cool. Because um, there's so many different um, avenues to get into the work. Mm-hmm. But anyway, you are a California person, yes? Yes. Um, what, what did your parents do in California? Um, dad's an engineer. Uh-huh. Um, and my mother was a, she's actually a marriage and family therapist. Oh, interesting. Um, really? Which, <laughs> I know you probably, probably relate to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually she quit that practice and was doing tutoring for kids with dyslexia. So reading, reading tutoring. Mm. Yeah. So it's a good way to rake it in as a psychologist to do learning yeah. difficulties, not to make that sound vulgar. It's also a really good thing to do. But yeah. I remember my mother had to do that like as we were saving for college. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's really great freelance for, you know, uh, a mother who's trying to kind of balance things. And any brothers and sisters? Yeah. I have one younger brother. He's also an engineer, but um, for a Silicon Valley company. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. And it was LA, right? Yeah. 
And were your are your parents artistic beings? Um, my mother was really very much into quilting. Um, so we have like handmade quilts all over. I would, would like request one with jungle animals on it. And she are like, so she would kind of make things with like my favorite animals. Um, I also relate a lot to her mother, who was a fashion illustrator from the Upper East Side. Um, unfortunately, I never got to meet her when I was like conscious. I was like a baby when she passed. Oh. So, um, but that would have been incredible to like. An illustrator from New York. Yeah. Like who did like those sort of flowy. Yeah. You know, the typical, what's a fashion illustrator really? Yeah. Like, she trained as that. Um, I haven't actually seen that. Like it's. You've never seen the work? No, it's, everything's kind of mysterious. Yes, there's like this weird projection of like the other person who draws or the other person who yeah. makes things. Yeah. So it's like this kind of figure in my mind. Um, yeah. I feel like I can kind of relate to her like. You know, she's like very distant and knower. So, um, so this is not like a California family through and through. Was your mom from New York? Uh, no, she she was from California. So she was from like where LAX is now. Um, so part of where she lived, like, got paved over for runways. Oh my gosh! Yeah. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. Interesting. Was it like? Was it a? Was it like Valley Girl nine hundred two one zero? A little bit, yes. Um, we were on the coast, but um, a lot of my classmates kind of were like that. But it's also very diverse, which I'm really grateful for. Um, kind of knowing, yeah, um, it's it was like a really cool, cool place. <laughs> was I saw some pictures of you going home for the holidays on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I don't know how I got this image, but I sort of... Uh, Oh, maybe it's from seeing the Rage Against the Machine oh. uh, imagery in the show that I started to think about what your um, what your high school might have been like. Where did you tell me that you were like a goth skater, something like that? No, um, I had a strong interest in all of those things. <laughs> yeah. All of the above. Yeah, at well, once really or in phases. What <laughs> at once or in phases? Um. Probably phases. I think outwardly, I was like this very hippie, um, California. Like I remember there was a '70s revival in the '90s. So yeah, I remember that. Yeah. So um, yeah, like my best memories are like wearing flares. But I was really into the movie Almost Famous. So, oh sure. So did you wear a fur coat? Maybe. Um, I wore like the little like peasant tops and uh -huh. yeah, but um, I was like very much kind of like blonde Penny Lane on the outside, but yeah. I feel like, um, yeah, kind of my secret musical life and like that I shared with just a few friends was like kind of more like hardcore stuff like that. Hardcore um, what? Like actually um, hardcore music? Mm, more like, you know, I was a suburban kid and I didn't have like, you know, cool older siblings, like directing, I was just kind of like, just kind of like pure, like, you know, kind of, yeah, K-Rock, but like, right. um, it was kind of later on in college that I kind of went more in depth with all that, but, um, but you, were, you were making art when you were a kid though, right? Yeah. I know, you know, you know, Sam Mess, so I ran into Sam Messer at your show today Yes. and he was explaining to me and Kai, your gallerist. How do you say his last name? Kai, Kai Matsumiya. Matsumiya. He was explaining to me and Kai Matsumiya that he knew you from Norfolk, mm -hmm. which is like um, 
how would you describe Norfolk? Like a pre-college program or like Yeah, a- I kind of describe it as like I call it like Baby Scout Hegan. Like, yes, it is like Baby Scout Yeah, Hegan. it has like yeah. exactly like half the amount as like the Scout Hegan people, um, <laughs> you know? Oh, there's a lot of students. So it's like 25 residents. Um, yeah. Well, back then we didn't have smartphones. So it was like being thrown into like a reality show with no like cell phone reception. So oh, like no contact to the outside world except like. Yeah, but that's how, yeah. that, was how that was kind of okay. Right? I, I, it was like transformative. Yeah. Like, I think I kind of miss that. I mean, there have to be places like that now without reception stuff. Where I work. Where yeah, I yeah. work it is that. Although students still are like absolutely on every um, social media platform. Yeah. That's regardless. hard to believe if you don't have social media. No, no, no. Yeah. It's everywhere. And, uh, but, but, you know, it still feels sort of like that, like, where the fuck are we? And I, I kind of wonder if students and high schoolers have, like, true camp experiences anymore. Like, where they actually go and, yeah. and, are, and like, find themselves in a new environment, disconnected from home. Yeah, because part of that is, like, you don't get to rely on the kind of coping mechanisms or that you get through, like, your outside front, you know, you're out your family, you know, you're kind of talking kind of have this constant through line with friends, but then when you're on your own, you're sort of just like reinventing how you manage. Yeah, and that was moment so to moment. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Did you meet good friends when you were doing that? Yeah, really close friends. Um, we had um, a really interesting year. Like um, a lot of them became galleries, gallerists, like really good really? galleries. Like They're who? still around now. Um, the people from Bodega were there. Really? So um, Elise and Eric and... Um, Mika, who was one of the the directors of Night Gallery, mm-hmm. um, she was there as an artist, and um, yeah, a lot of other friends. Wow! Yeah, magic times. Yeah, and so from there you went to UCLA. I went to Cal State Long Beach. Whoops! But <laughs> you know why I said that? Yeah. Because Sam was like, "Oh yeah, I knew Tracy before she went to UCLA," and I was like, "Oh okay." Yeah. I guess that's- so everybody thinks you went to UCLA, but you like, went to Cal State Long Beach. Yeah, is that like a? Thinks I was goth. <laughs> it's like, that's interesting. Well, the well, the yeah. work sort of yeah. suggests that in, yeah. in some sort of really superficial way. But I like all these associations, like these kind of mistaken identities. As well. Yeah, they're pretty yeah. badass, right? Yeah. But actually, you were listening to K Rock at Cal State Long Beach. No, in the South Bay of Los Angeles. But I was going to like the the punk shows at the churches, so I knew like the the Irish Monkeys and like small bands that you would never know. Like, okay, I don't actually, know the Irish Monkeys. Yeah, well, you wouldn't. I, yeah, okay. Yeah, all right. But all right. um, all these bands and um, yeah, actually, the artist David Horvitz was in that scene, kind of taking photos. Oh, really? You know? Yeah. So, and I also went to high school with Jamie Chan. Who I really? With yeah, we were in oh. the same art art class. That's cool. Yeah. Wow. So early on, you're making work. Yeah. I had a pretty strong, yeah, intensive focus on art. Like, yeah, from a young age. So it was always my main deal. Did you know you wanted to get to New York? Yeah. I think, um, yeah, L.A. was like, I loved the year I lived in L.A. after Cal State Long Beach. Um, But I didn't think the painting, like, dialogue at that point was, like, conducive, like, I just didn't appreciate like kind of historical like it was very much like kind of chill very chilled out painting in those years like the kind of Jonas Wood <laughs> proto uh-huh. 
that proto scene of that, like, and what was your kind of browy, like, kind of browy? Okay, like, yeah. Like a, and I was mm-hmm. like the opposite, kind of like, um, I was making California landscapes, cult landscapes, and they were like heavily influenced by Norfolk. Um, also Wait, kind back, of back up cult landscapes, cults like, like the Heaven's Gate cult. Oh, was, cult landscapes. Yeah, I was making narratives. Um, I was kind of making these cosmologies, like. Because I was really interested in Heaven's Gate because it was a suburban, like a fully suburban cult. And like, I can kind of play with like the weirdness of these interstitial spaces in LA. Um, like, wait, wait, so back up. Heaven's Gate is, yeah. um, that's the one that happened in the 90s or the late 80s? Yeah, where they all wore the Nikes and the purple shrouds. Okay. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. I, you know, I listened to a podcast called Cults. Yeah. And they, I, so I feel like I'm well versed in the cults, but now I'm forgetting. I remember Heaven's Gate because I remember being conscious for Heaven's Gate and like cult. I feel like the 80s was really the, the, the decade of mm. the American cult and Satanism and Satanism. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's Heaven's, did Heaven's Gate have to do with Satanism? No. No, that was, um, the Hale Bop comet. They thought a spaceship was behind Hale Bop. Um, so I actually like, I did intensive research. Like I went and read someone's doctoral thesis on them. On Heaven's Gate. On Heaven's Gate. What was the angle? Um, they talked about the, intensively about the history of the cult. Um, so it was run by Doe and like T or, you know, they all had these like musical letter names. Really? But don't you run out after like eight? Yeah. I guess, well then, but there's 64 people that can be in it or something. Yeah. I don't know. know. (laughs) Um, but it was Herb Applewhite, and you know he was the charismatic leader, and he had but his so like. So he gets a relatively normal name. Yeah, but they had their cult name, so he was like Doe, and his woman, like his partner, was named like T or something, T I. Right. So right. they would like go to these campsites, and they would like ring a bell, and everyone would switch tasks. So, so it's just like extreme control, um, like regimented control over their group members. And they would all, they were mm. also, they all also tried to be asexual. So they were an asexual cult. Like mm. they weren't um, physically castrated, but they like mentally castrated themselves, everybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they kept trying to get beamed up by the spaceship. So there, there's this archival footage on one of the videos I watched in the library um, in college about them going to the Santa Monica Pier. It's like helicopter footage, and you see these people milling about on a pier. Like, oh, wow. wait, it's just like this kind of very almost pathetic. <laughs> but it's just like they're milling, like the news is like there's a gathering of people. And, um, and they were just waiting to get beamed They were waiting to get beamed up by the spaceship from the Santa Monica Pier. Um, and I could kind of relate to this kind of like, <laughs> No, like this kind of like edge, you're just kind of on the edge of the Pacific Ocean and you want to escape your life. Like it's like this form of escapism and like, um, I always joke <laughs> that I'm like just a few wrong turns away yeah. from cult. And I think a lot of artists mm. can feel that way. Cause you're sort of like living on what might be the edge of norms and, oh yeah, um, you can get so, yeah. I mean, especially as a younger person, you feel like you could get so easily manipulated like oh oh yeah and then yes yeah I I mean as as a young person I mean I think that's why I'm an artist because I just like something things were thrown in front of me and I was like oh okay I'll just passionately latch on to this yeah and um yeah I guess I never really looked at that critically no I I have but yeah um, but don't you feel like it's a little it's a little weird it's pretty culty yeah like if we lived in the middle of nowhere we might 
we didn't have, you know, if we didn't have our, could be in any cult. <laughs> yeah, because it's, it's a sort of purpose outside of, well, it depends on what kind of artist you are, but you're subscribing to a mission that's like, you know, not mainstream. You're yeah. probably ridiculously passionate and somewhat disciplined if you're making art all the time, which is hard to do in a capitalist society, you know, unless yeah. you're selling it as a commodity. And, um, you know, you like cool outfits. <laughs> so yeah. the combo would be really interesting. Yeah. You know? So um, the speaking of cool outfits, the thing mm -hmm. about this cult is they were known for this black and white Nike style that got discontinued. Right. But did they even buy them out or it was um, discontinued after they were like Whoops. immediately after oh, yeah. the death of like 40 something people. But, yeah. And then they were all wearing them when they died. Right. Yeah. they every single person had, um, the black and white Nike sneakers and then a purple shroud, like draped diagonally. So the corner, the top corner is near their head, but it's just like the aesthetics of this cult was incredible. So like wow. I'm, I made like green sneakers. And then I dressed up in like the Adidas track pants were really big at that time. So mm -hmm. I was like, um, just kind of posing and would like, just kind of put myself as like figures in these landscapes. And then, um, it's like track pants and then yoga. This was like when yoga was rising up. Right. For the first, as a main, like, as and a it was becoming, American hobby. Yeah, yeah. Watered down yoga. So it was. But this was all very, very like Southern California. Oh, so for the last meal that they ate, the Heaven's Gate members was um, chicken pot pies at Marie Callender's with lemon iced tea. So, Marie Callender's? What's yeah. this? Oh, this must be. Is uh, this a West Coast? It must be. I thought it was, you know, I thought it was Amer very American. Marie Callender's is like um, the French version of like the Olive Garden. So like kind of. You know, never it's heard like of a that. fancy grandma, like your grandmother's like, we're going to go to a fancy restaurant. Marie Callender's like. Marie yeah. Callender's. Yeah. With two L's. See, like you're from New York, so you don't know these like suburban-y like chains. <laughs> I'm like, let's go to the apples and bees. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. That too. No, I, okay. Yeah. yeah. No, that's, wow. So okay. I got really into like strip malls as like these kind of interstitial spaces, like growing up. Um, like in Southern California, you don't, you don't get a lot of places to go out. There weren't even like bars where I grew up. Mm. Um, so we would just like go hang out, like in the strip mall, like just underneath in the parking lots at night. Right. So my paintings were a lot about just kind of like meeting up in these like kind of dead zones, not mm -hmm. dead zones, but like unused kind of, um, Right. Or like maybe spaces and reusing a space as, as a social space. Yeah. That's or like the um, kind of like the arches of a strip mall as like a sanctuary, but mm. you're like outside. Um, when you, what do you mean by interstitial? Um, well, it's like when you move to New York, everything is filled with like details. And um, I mean, space is such at a premium. Um, and pro probably most of America's like this, I would guess, like um, open, um, there's a lot of open fields in the area where I'm from because they mm -hmm. can't build because there's like tectonic landslides. Mm -hmm. So, um, or just like, you know, you have an empty lot here in New York, but just like multiply that times like hundreds, you know? Yeah, no, I, I yeah. get it. There's like a sort empty of lots. like, um, yeah. okay. Okay. Yeah. Those spaces were so, and still are so new to me. Like, 
Well, in Vermont, it's yeah. different because it's so rural there. So, like, yeah. you're just driving and it's forest for a while. Right. So, so it's, suburban space is different. Yeah, because when you're a kid, you imagine it's rural. Like, but it's really just kind of a small, you know, an acre or so of land. You're like, oh, this right. is where nothing is. And I'm on the edge of civilization. Mm-hmm. And, like, or you're like, here's nature. There's a lot of nature, like, you know. You can kind of just be in immediately in nature when you're in LA. Right. I remember that In like that really too. extreme drastic ways. Like you can drive up to the mountains and like, um, so when I was researching for this like cult where I was taking pictures for this cult thing, I took my friends on this big adventure to like Mount Baldy like, or, or the mountains. Um, I think it's the San Gabriel or I forget the name of the mountain range that's in LA, but um yeah, it'd just be like, oh, you can kind of be in these extremes really quickly. Mm. Yeah. Deserts. Yeah, desert. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And LA is actually a chaparral, which is different from a desert. What's a chaparral? Chaparral is more, it's like less dry and less extreme, but it has, and it has like slightly different vegetation. It's more like scrubby. So it's like, Oh, yeah, like even worse. <laughs> you know? it's like lots of sage. Well, desert, but it is very dry. But we've got some plants, you know. Yeah, yeah. Lots of sage. It's, really? Yeah. Sage grows in the chaparral. Yeah, yeah. I I like to go home and pick sage. Do you smudge it? My mom's sage. No, I don't really do those kinds of rituals so much. Like, uh-huh. yeah. What? But you you just said that as if you do other rituals. Um, I don't know. I I just like personal rituals instead. Well, that could, I could, that could also explain some of the appeal of cult culture. Yeah, because they're inventing, you know, like the la- their last meal is just like, yeah, and kind of giving significance to, um, yeah, all the things that a cult like that would give significance to. Wow. Chicken pot pies and iced tea. That's yeah. such an image. It actually sounds delicious, though. Yeah. It's right? like a very wholesome last meal. Yeah, yeah, sure. Before they drink, like, their cyanide or whatever. Is that what they did? They didn't, they didn't drink the Kool-Aid. That's um, that's the whole... That was the 80s, that's early Waco, 80s one. Right? Jones, yeah. Yeah, Jones Jonestown Massacre. Is when they drank the Kool-Aid. Yeah, the Branch Davidians. That one's freakier, and I stay away from that one. Oh, I was going to yeah. suggest that you listen to this cults podcast, but it, it, oh, is, really it, does, it really goes deep into the freaky ones. It's kind of upsetting. Yeah. I mean, I can listen to that, but yeah, it's like, it's a little like, wow, that's violent. Like, yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know which one was really good? I always, I, when I'm driving home, I sometimes, I, not sometimes, I almost always take 87, which is like a sort of long, slow route um, through upstate New York, mm-hmm. like in Poughkeepsie. And mm-hmm. I listened to the one about the, um, you know, they're, they're, what are they called? They did the silver Oneida. Is that how you say it? Oneida oh, okay. cult. That's one I'm actually really not familiar with. It's They were another asexual. Oh, no, no. They were sexual. The mother got the, the mothers got to molest the young men was part oh, of the oh. um, part of that power structure. Was that one of the, the first like polyamorous communities? Yeah. I, in the U S that's, maybe. I mean, it was one of the first culty ones that's documented in the U S and I think uh, I'm just remembering, I don't remember that much about the cult. I remember how scared I was to be in that sort of long stretching highway landscape, sort of knowing that like miles from me yeah. this happened and like, who knows what's, you know, 
off that exit. And so like they in were the from woods. Vermont? No, they were from upstate New York. Oh, okay. Um, but like Western Mass, upstate New York, I think. It could be like gross things out in the woods. Yeah, there's all sorts of stuff yeah. out in the woods and, and maybe not even too far out into the woods, you know? Yeah. But I get, well, I mean, I want to hear about the transition from doing these landscapes into your work now, which I know mm-hmm. is a long transition. Mm-hmm. Um, were those also sort of monochrome black and white or were they like full color images? They of- were very uh, intense, bright colors. Like, um, So whenever I use color, I have this this kind of inclination, like the like the color, probably most, well, probably a lot of artists do this, but um, you know, you have your color schemes, and then it it connotes something very specific to you. Right. So I was kind of working with like this new age palette, like um, kind of pale pale blues, pale pinks, and purples. Mm-hmm. I was like really inspired by that movie Safe with Todd by Todd Haynes. Julianne Moore, do you know it? Yeah. It's, um, so it's all about the late 80s and like the first kind of wave of eco-consciousness. But I was, so I was kind of working with these like really pale, I wanted like these really sickly colors for the cult. Like, mm-hmm. like you're kind of looking through a haze. Like, Interesting. Yeah. A couple of them are on my website. But oh, really? Yeah. Like they're way back in there. I didn't, yeah. Yeah. I didn't see those. Yeah. But like when I moved to New York, I was like, oh my God. I like took them all off the internet. <laughs> was that, did you move to New York to go to Columbia? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I got in there and at CalArts. So um, I really liked CalArts as an institution, but um, I had already done the kind of like you go to Valencia out there. I wanted to be in like, a di- I just wanted to be in a different city because um, I wasn't really at home within the LA art scene at that time. Like, right. Not your kind of painting. Yeah, and it was also still very sexist out oh, there. Oh, really? What year was this? This was 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember like the Chinatown scene. Mm-hmm. Like that that, that was Dragon having its... Society. Yeah, I think that had closed, but it was having its last glimmers. Um, it just felt like no one would like take you seriously out I mean that's probably not that's probably not true, but like well, I don't know. You know, you have to kind of go elsewhere. Yeah, I always tell students if they ask like where should they go for grad school, I'm like, well, if you went to kind of an out there school, like try to go to a big city. Mm-hmm. And if you went, you were in a big city, like say you were in New York for undergrad, then go to like just way out there for grad school. Like, you like don't where's to... way out there? Oh, I mean. Calot's just a little bit out there because you're in Valencia. It's still part of LA, but you're like, you're separate. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's up in Valencia, which is that suburban. It's a very conservative place or or anywhere, you know, you kind of go anywhere where you just kind of dive into your own work and you're not like constantly distracted. So that was like my undergrad experience. So I wanted like a, I just wanted to come to the East Coast because and I can imagine, yeah. I mean, when you were talking about coming up here to 108th Street, mm-hmm. you were like, oh, it's the same amount of time to travel to Columbia. And then I thought, yeah. oh, shit, was Tracy like doing an hour commute to <laughs> grad school every day? No, no. Um, I lived in that area, luckily. Um, uh, yeah, it's a tough commute. No, that was for my teaching. Oh, yeah. are you teaching at Columbia now? Um, yeah, I'll be teaching. I'm teaching this semester. So in a couple weeks, it'll start. Wow. Yeah. What are you teaching? 
What am I teaching? Yeah. Um, I'm teaching, it's an archaeological illustration class. Oh, so I was talking about this. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. a little bit like how you were just talking about how you co-teach with somebody uh-huh. and um, in kind of a whole new genre that, that, than they've had at the school before. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So an archaeology professor, she took my drawing class at Columbia in 2014. Wow. And um, I learned a really technical um, classical style of drawing in undergrad. So mm-hmm. She was like, a lot of these things you're teaching would work really well for archaeological illustration. And I've been looking for an artist to help me teach. What kind of technical classical things was she was she referring to? Um, well, archaeological illustration is like it's it's slightly different from drawing. But oh. um, but, you know, I, I learned like, you know, precise measuring. Right. And like, right. OK. You know, the clap like academic. Okay. Figure drawing. So that's what I mean by clap, but like technical right. skills. Um, I mean, I can speak really well to that with the, her students, our students. Um, so especially if the archaeology students, you know, art, anyone can take it. Art majors can take it. Um, but if their archaeology students are less confident with drawing, like I can teach them like drawing, drawing. So what, yeah. what does archaeological illustration entail that drawing does not? Um, it's measurements, like one, your, your initial illustration is on this um, graph pa- paper, which is um, in centimeters. Uh, so you're actually taking calipers and you're doing oh. one-to-one measurements. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, wow. Yeah. And then the next, the second step to that is, um, yeah, you're doing one-to-one measurements of everything with like calipers. Mm-hmm. Um but it's like this weird, it's kind of like this point, uncanny valley of like, you can't do everything exactly precisely with a tool. So that's where drawing comes in. Like, mm-hmm. you have, I mean, I, I, I didn't come at it through like professional illustrations. So I don't know their methods, but it's like, um, yeah. So that's where kind of like classical kind of measurements and proportions, you know, proportions. that's where that comes in. You mm-hmm. kind of have, it's like this back and forth. Cause like sometimes you're like pencil lead is like too tiny to even get like details of like an artifact you're drawing. So mm-hmm. um, we work hands-on with artifacts in the lab. So like, um, well, I'll rewind. So then the second step of archeological, the reason it has to be one-to-one is because then uh, you blow it up, usually double size, but you have your little scale, mm-hmm. um, like a map, the scale, um, like this is one centimeter. So, mm-hmm. um, and do you draw you you enlarge it in, as a drawing? You enlarge it for the inking step, and then you trace it like on um, on Duralar. Does that still even happen? Yeah, I'm surprised this is like still the method. This right. is very old school. So we go we go into this in the class. Like, why would you? Why would they still do this? And um, surprisingly, it's actually still the standard. If you are, if you're an anthropologist slash archaeologist, and you are studying these specific artifacts, um, it's still the standard to illustrate them because um, we're not yet at a point with like 3D imaging to get all the surface details. And archaeological illustration, all the marks are like codified in such a way, Um, like stippling means one thing or like 
you know, directional curves, directional parallel lines mean another thing. Really? So it's like a map that um, anthropologists can read, archaeologists can read pretty easily as notations. Hmm. So um, an archaeological illustration empties out all the, like, say you're drawing a Paleolithic stone tool, like a, a sharp tool. Mm -hmm. um, the stippling would be for, like, the outer layer that's like the natural rock and then these directional lines will be like the line the, the strike mark that the, the stuff was flaked off wow yeah. okay i see what you're saying so anything that seems removed is a line anything that's on the, the surface human, yeah is... so you're showing like the blows of the i see yeah the rocks well, that's kind of cool. Yeah. And I can totally see how, I mean, I had a really technical undergrad experience as well before I yeah. went to Brown. And okay. I can totally see how, yeah, once I got to Brown, it was like, I'll shoot from there. <laughs> I didn't but, know um, you did technical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, did, I went to Wash U for a year and their oh, fine art, yeah. their like first year of their BFA okay. is just like lots of drawing and very traditional. And then I went to the New York Figurative Academy for mm. a um, program like a three month summer thing. And uh. yeah, and actually when I got to Brown, I was like so proud of myself that I could like render the shit out of anything. Totally. And, uh, and like no one cared. And it was like this right. big existential crisis where I was like, how can you not care about this? This is like how I've learned to identify myself. Totally. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. It was, I'm like, yeah, I think I've recovered, but it was, I, yeah. uh, it was a real deal. Um, like mind fuck for me. I feel like that's a pretty relatable crisis. For yeah. Like many art students, depending what avenue they took, like yeah. becoming an artist. Like mm -hmm. sometimes I wonder what it would be like if you were like, oh, I was a sociologist and then I got into art. You know, you don't have all this baggage with like drawing and painting. I'm jealous. Yeah. Yeah. Because then you don't have these sort of like formative years of like, like part of why I like this is because it's so like, like I imagine people saying them to themselves subconsciously that it, it helped define who they think they are and as like a capable human being, you the know, art or the, the skill mastery the, and then the drawing. Yeah. Like oh. any sort of skill mastery. Oh, like, absolutely. Oh, I can, you know, I am capable because I can do X, Y, Z in a competent, precise, clean way. I must be worthy of something. And, um, turns out it doesn't, it's, there's that kind of skill doesn't necessarily have currency. Um, in the same way in the fine art discourse that like, you know, I think most artists who go through the MFA yeah. wheel uh, land in, but the, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't because I think that for your work, the way they're made is, I mean, this is, I, I talk about this on the podcast. This is my take, but I actually really am interested in how things are made and attention oh, to craft. And um, just funny because a lot of my work is like very hands off, but, but I am interested yeah. in that quality Technical. as well. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm very sort of skilly, even though there's like that. no hand, like I get very excited about how things are made and, 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 and how your work is made and, and people need things to be made, you know? Yeah. It's like this ongoing, it's like the everlasting debate. If like, you know, like I was reading. I, okay. So when I was in LAX actually, yeah. Um, most recently, yeah. Okay. So last week, um, I was just, they didn't have that many magazines, but I saw Fast Company. So I flipped through it and there's yeah. this one page about how, how, um, how not Bitcoin, but how the blockchain is changing art. And it's like artists can make works that are completely digital now. They never hit the material sphere. 
you know, that, I mean, but to, and it's like, oh, it's this brand new thing where an, yeah. where an artwork doesn't have to be made. It's not new, of course. Yeah, but yeah, to yeah. Fast That's company, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. It's very new. That's yeah. what I mean. It's like, oh, like there are, you know, it's it's that back and forth between like, do we need an embodied artwork, or you know, or can things like live in the digital realm? Like yeah, they're, they're like trying what's to make an extension things. of my hand yeah. and what does immaterial labor look like and, and how is that yeah. labor recognizable or erased? I mean, all these things are questions that I think about in my work all the time. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Where does the hand come in? Or it's like people who are like completely digital, they're trying to make things like look more handmade. And then I'm like doing it all analog. I'm trying to make it look more like machined. <laughs> Right. Yeah. But the thing is, both are handmade. That's what's so funny. Yeah. Because it's like, there's yeah. a hand, there's a human hand doing something in all these scenarios. And I think it's like a false dichotomy to say that one thing's handmade, one thing's not. It's just one thing has marks that we recognize as hand interacting with technology in this very classical way. And one thing is a hand yeah. that's removed a little bit more. But like, you can see my marks in Photoshop. Like, you can see oh, for my sure. hand, my body doing something. And, uh, yeah. and oddly, like, I think it actually, like, you do have to have bodily control to work on a computer too. And it's, um, I don't know, we're getting into questions that are sort of more, abstract. they're not necessarily, they're very abstract and they're not necessarily totally embedded in, uh, your work, but the, I, yeah. I think about this a lot and I actually, you know what they are. And I know we're jumping ahead a little bit to your show now, but I think it's okay. Sure. One thing that Kai said that I took issue with in your, I mean, we didn't like debate it out or anything. <laughs> But he was like, these are very painterly paintings. And I was oh. like, what does that mean, painterly? You know, is it because yeah. you can see a brush occasionally? Like, I think that, like, to me, when I think of painterly paintings, um, well, maybe it's just like an empty word, painterly. But like, you know, I sort of think of the glop and a certain like um, organic nature to the texture, brush marks. Um, a lot of scraping away. I have and, that association. Yeah. You know, and, and then not just scraping away, but like sort of removal and then addition and removal and addition rather than just addition, 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 you mm -hmm. know? And, um, and so I was really surprised to hear him say that, but I think he was just referring to how self-evident the process is on the surface of the work. Like you can see the stenciling that you make. I mean, basically to describe them, I, what I saw was images that were like, looked like, negatives of black and white images mm -hmm. like it had been reversed mm -hmm. and then um uh made into a vector map somehow like you know with some sort of vector graphic program and then separated into layers and then painstakingly translated <laughs> onto a canvas with like stenciling and maybe some airbrush and a brush and um what was interesting to me, the painting seemed like pretty straightforward that way, but the drawings, which were of the same things as the paintings, like say there'd be like yeah. this neoclassical bust of um, the supermodel, Hadrian's Muse. Antinius, yeah. Antinius. Well, those drawings are actually process. It's the first step. Those are like preparatory drawings. But, you know, some of the drawings had, like I couldn't tell whether you were drawing from... Um, uh, a slide or an image, um, or from the vector illustrated traced version or both, mm. because some of the shapes that you were making in the drawings almost looked like vector paths. And you know what I'm talking about? Like when you have illustrator, like when you take a rasterized image 
and you ask Illustrator to like trace all the curves. You know what I mean? Or not trace all the curves, but like basically tra- make oh. it into layers. Like the dotted lines, like separate things out. You yeah, know? separate things out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, the secret is I don't I don't use those. You don't use those? I'm I'm the vector graphics really? machine. Yeah. You look like a vector graphics machine. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. That's a huge compliment in my book. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. It really looks like that because there's a sort of like evenness to how do I describe that? Um sort of like the intervals of how shapes are and lines move and are made feel mm-hmm. very even. So yeah, that's I think that's the style I've developed. That's like become part of my style, like doing these the last like eight years or so. Wow. Yeah. It looks so illustrator y, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, the secret is it's all like analog. The only mechanical step is when I um, go to like a print place and get like my drawing blown up to the scale of the painting. Wow. There's no projectors. I'm like, no projectors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and no, um, no uh, digitization of an image. Right. Yeah, I always think it would be a lot easier if I did, and I would like save a lot of steps. But yeah, I think it'd be really easy, Tracy. But then it wouldn't be my, my <laughs> work know. anymore. I know, I know. That's yeah. why I don't project the slides and trace the slides because it's really important to me. Um, the drawing step translates. Yeah, it separates things. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that. This inter- like I don't. It's like I'm so close to them. I haven't seen them in that way. Like the, oh, okay. I haven't seen. Yeah, that kind of regularity, but yeah, that's kind of like how I draw. And then, and then the paintings themselves pick up like those drawing marks. Like I turn marks into like drawn line or something. But mm-hmm. then, but then I still have to cut it out as a stencil. So I'm like cutting out like a mark that I've made, like a, a pencil scratch. I see. Yeah, 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 yeah. It does make sense. Yeah. So the paintings are of these. Or a lot of the paintings, not a lot. Maybe the show is like maybe, what, eight things, ten things? Yeah, probably eight to ten. I forget. Yeah. Yeah. And there's um, an image of, well, so you know what? I think we should back up a little bit. Okay. Um, Because a lot of the work in this show is neoclassical imagery that's then sort of put through the filter of your hand and process. and becomes monochrome oil paintings. Are they oil or acrylic? They're it's acrylic. Oil. Oh, it's acrylic. acrylic airbrush. Yeah. Um, but and other work has been similarly sourced, right? With images that you're finding in different archives. Yeah, um, my main archive is like all analog slides, four by five negatives in my house. Like, where did you find those originally? Um, I was working in the, the Stronach Center at Columbia, the, me- the media, the media library. So the art historians, um, it's like they had, they had so many slides that they digitized. So like since the, the, the since the department began. Um, so when I was working there in like 2010, um, the guy who was running, I was like, Hey, Tracy, you want some slides? Give them to the art students, give them to the photo students. I was like, 
yes, I will do that. And, and then, then you kept them all. <laughs> yes. But it's also like this burden because now I have to like have like a room, basically like one side of my room for all these file boxes full of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sides. Wow. Like a whole wall, a whole wall. Yeah. Of just slides. Of boxes. Of, of four by fives. Yeah. And so they're so beautiful. Yeah. They're just so, they're such a beautiful material. And that's like how I originally turned to airbrushing was like, I'll see what happens when I airbrush the slide. Like, just like hold it up to the light, like to the window and just like draw it and then like airbrush it. What made you go for the airbrush though? Uh, so that is part of that whole technical draw, like painting and drawing thing. Um, there, yeah, there was this moment where I, I needed like some separation. I needed an obstacle in painting because like uh, oil painting felt too immediate. I was always an oil painter up until then. And um, I just, or the, the, the hand, like the, the academic drawing was like frustrating me because mm. sometimes you can't, you want a looser hand, but you're like, I'm still measuring shit mm-hmm. and um, trying, you know, I don't know if, well, you, you had the life drawing thing. So um, it's like, I, I'll, I'll get a style by kind of getting, yeah, by having, you know, these extra steps blocking me, like I, something that I, I'm, I'm not good at, you know? Mm-hmm. So and disable like, your hand a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. Disable the hand. Mm-hmm. And like, how can I um, kind of achieve this image, but kind of like through, like through a weird winding path. Yeah. Yeah. So basically you got, you got a little too good. <laughs> Tracy just shrugged she put her hands up <laughs> so, you, so you picked up an airbrush but oddly the airbrush yeah. is something that people use as a crutch a lot like they use it to yeah. sort of keep their I don't know why people actually I've never used airbrushing so I don't know why, but to me it seems like an easy way if you use it with some sort of um, frisket to keep things clean and you know um, oh, yeah. relatively organized no? um Say it again. Like if you're using the airbrush um, uh, in in conjunction with friskets so that you're able to mask certain areas, yeah. airbrush, and then take, remove the mask, put new masks down, airbrush. It seems like an easy way to keep your image quite separate and clean. Oh, like shortcut. So yeah, my friend, um, Caitlin Cherry, calls it auto-tune for painters. <laughs> but doesn't Caitlin Cherry use that too? Or no, know. I've never seen her paintings in person. Know. She's hilarious. She has a really interesting looking show right now that I'm going to go see maybe even tomorrow cool. at Providence College. So I'm oh, leaving right. Providence tonight. Yeah. Oh, you're going to Providence. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. It'll be a random trip. No, we're, I'm, I'm seeing people and we're also getting married there. So oh my God. Wait, like, this weekend? No, 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 not this oh, weekend. <laughs> no, but like it, it, the, yeah. the wedding shit, you have to like go meet with people. Oh, and, cool. Um, you know. Oh, that's I'm cool. going to go. Yeah. Yeah. I think about wedding logistics. But I figured I would actually also do um, uh, Providence College Caitlin Cherry trip. Cool. Because Rochelle looks amazing. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. so she calls it auto-tune for... I don't know if she'll like me saying that, but she's she she's great. <laughs> yeah, she seems really great. I don't think it's a bad thing. No, you know, it's funny. Auto-tune, I think T-Pain was one of the first people who really got auto-tune um, mainstream. Um T Pain, are you familiar? Share. Really, was a chair? Do you believe in love? Really, that <laughs> yeah. was a, that was an auto tune thing. Yeah, 
I thought, I don't know why I thought that, but you yeah. know, I was surprised that the T-Pain does like a tiny desk concert and he can really, really sing. And it's so weird okay. to hear him sing because all of his music is auto-tuned. I'm not super familiar with him. Oh, well, go, go. I'll check it out after this. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> yeah. Really trashy music. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hate auto-tuned sound now. I mean, it's just everywhere though. It's just yeah. like the sound. It's not like an option. I was actually, I was listening to, not listening to, but I was like at a New Year's party where they were, had the ball drop going and on TV and there were all these sort of like live concerts yeah. and there were these young women singing uh, songs that I like hear when I like, you know, go to a Walmart or something. <laughs> oh, and, uh, and I was like so surprised that there were people singing these songs like as their artworks. I was like, because I just sort of assumed it was all made by a machine, oh, <laughs> you know? But do they auto-tune it on the spot, like, while they're performing? Um, I can't tell. I mean, maybe, probably. Yeah. But it was yeah. just so bizarre to, like, even see a body. Because it just sounds like disembodied voice to me. Like, it's hard oh, to imagine yeah, there's a human that's, like, really breathing and, like, writing this and, like, you know, performing the shit out of this. And then to see this, like, person there, I was like, wow, like... Are you dancing to the song? And then I realized it was like coming out of their body. <laughs> it was so oh, weird. Man. Didn't like Britney Spears have a debate like, oh, is she singing or lip? Or, I mean, that's a constant debate. It's like, is she lip syncing? Like, I, I, do, you, do we really care? I no care one cares a little now. bit. No one cares now. Yeah. I kind of care because I, I like the, the tension of the live performance. But that doesn't mean that I don't like airbrushing. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, it's um, it depends how you use it. So you were saying it's 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 kind of usually used as a shortcut, but I was using it as a frustrator, like yeah, like as something that was actually going to disable you and slow you down. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um, what else was I going to say about that? Um, oh, also at that time, like airbrushing was still considered like almost poor taste, like mm -hmm. in especially in the kind of like professor world, you know, just class, you know. Mm -hmm. This Velvet now it's paintings. Yeah, kinda, exactly. Yeah, now it's yeah. ubiquitous. But when I was getting crits, it was like Rickert comes in. He's like, "So you like graffiti?" <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, mm, "Sure, who doesn't?" Like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, "There's more to airbrush than graffiti." But I, it was also, and then um, other professors were like, "Yeah, it reminds me of like those T-shirts at the county fair." So it still like had those associations. It was like just a slightly different moment in painting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I actually went with my cousin who was kind of, he's, he loved, he's a graffiti aficionado. So we went to like this guy's garage, like in the Bay area, like Fremont or something. And yeah. like, he just gave us a little tutorial. Like you cut out the ball with the frisket and then you shade the, the sphere Wow. Yeah. And it was like this new, I was just really excited to have like a new tool to rely on. Mm -hmm. um, I'm actually like starting to miss brush strokes and color. So we'll see if that comes back. But, um, uh, but so you were talking about the moment when you had these slides and you were like, what would just happen if I tried to airbrush a slide and draw from the slide? Exactly. Yeah. I was kind yeah. of saying, like, how would that look? Mm -hmm. like, yeah. Um, so I did this like relief. My first one I did was a relief. I went to this box of slides and like got this beautiful, like, um, it was a stone relief of Vishnu with like a, the boar's head. I was like, this, this is like a beautiful image. And like, and it had a lot of like, 
because it was a negative, it was kind of broken down into abstract parts already. Wait, the slides are negatives? They're all negatives. Yeah, that's why I paint in the name, because I'm literally just painting the slide as material. I didn't know the slide was a negative. Yeah, slide not, negatives. Slide yeah. negatives. Slide negatives. The slides are positives usually. Yeah, so that's why, yeah, because they wanted to discard the negatives. I think Columbia kept the positives in their database, oh. but these negatives, the positive, yeah, they kept the, the positives. The negatives were like in a closet upstairs. Like, Have people just gone like balls to the wall with the concept of the negative with you? Not necessarily. Um, I mean, they talk about photography and film, but no one's gotten into the negative. I don't know. It just seemed like sort of like this weird, potentially philosophic, like, yeah. uh, consequence. Like, like what happens when you're like literally turning something inside out or, oh, yeah. or like the, and then, you know, will you go on? So you're, you're painting from the negative. Well, so I don't know if you saw the thing Time Out New York wrote. No, I didn't. <laughs> they, oh man. Okay. So this was the first time this had really been spoken of in this way, but they said it was turning the ideal of whiteness, which is an, which is a myth in itself, the mm. whiteness of classical sculpture, inverting it. So that whiteness becomes something deeply sinister. Like, Whoa, <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, you know, Kai was talking about that in relationship to your work too. We were talking yeah. about we were just talking about neoclassical impulses in general and what it means to like dig through the past in this very mm. superficial visual way, and um, you know, without place, relying on vision and no other senses to know about a culture and. Um, you know, the myth that all Greek sculpture is white is, um, uh, is indeed a myth. And yeah. it's just that we consume Greek sculpture as it's been worn and then as a plaster bust or a plaster cast. And so we just imagine that this world was like in black and white. And then the Western world right. um, fetishizes not just whiteness as in like embodied whiteness, but white and purity and... Or black and white or, as yes. an intellectual signifier. Uh -huh. So we get For into sure. that in my class, actually. Really? We break down, um, so like why are scientific diagrams black and white even? Because mm. color is supposedly, you know, from chromophobia. Like yeah. Color yeah. is um, unwise or can't be trusted. Mm -hmm. So like we kind of build up that we go into like, yeah, why... Um, these things came to signify what they did, the black and white line drawing, mm -hmm. um, signifying rationality. And, mm -hmm. um, and then Kai gets into a lot that was conceptual art, like draining, you know. Yeah, I think he's like, he, does, he says he, lo he doesn't love classic conceptual art because it's kind of this fetish of like the black and white. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, I mean, I'm trying it out in all different ways. Right? Kind of, like, so so when I choose color, it's like black and white, like to me is a color. It's like, mm -hmm. um, so I've kind of, I'm taking that to like its extremes, I guess. Mm. Yeah. And so you were, you were making a lot of work from these slides, right? Mm -hmm. And then this past show... And, you know, Kai actually mentioned that one of your shows was just slides at one point, that you were, like, projecting slides or projecting slide negatives. Um, in my thesis show, I was I was working at Columbia. I was working a lot with, like, I was trying to seize all the technology they had there, like, yeah. to try things out 
in different iterations. So I made, um, I was really into like structural film back then. So like, uh, I took one of the slides and like put it in a, so it's a four by five slide, but I put it in like a 35 millimeter, um, transparency reader. Cause that's all uh-huh. they had. And then it chopped up the slot, the four by five into 35 millimeter like sections. Huh. And then I turned that section into like a video of just like stills, like chopped up sections of, so like playing with, um, the materiality of the negatives and, um, I mean, I want to come back to, I want to like work more with that too. Cause you still are sitting on all these slides, right? I have to use them until I get rid of, I have to like, once I get rid of them, you know, I don't have space for them. It's like, well, but this has <laughs> been years, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I'm still using them. Right. Yeah. yeah. A lot of it is boring painting though. A lot of the slides. Boring painting. So I have to like dig through and find the sculpture. Well, eventually sections. you're going to like, like sort of like take out all the tasty bits and be left with the boring stuff, you know, yeah. that I mean, you'll I, have to confront too, yeah. right? Like get imagery from other places. Like, well, right. So I want yeah. to talk about that. So there's all this yeah. neoclassical imagery, right? And then this like impulse towards the archeologic, which obviously yeah. intersects with like a neoclassical impulse to dig up and like re mm-hmm. um, reimagine our past through the present and through political um impulses as well you know like, yeah like and, find things that kind of speak to this like fluidity of now like ambiguous yeah, I mean, images wasn't the whole history of archaeology I, I've seemed to I don't know too much about this but I yeah. I recall that like Germans for example were very um put a lot of funds and energy into early archaeological digs because they were really interested in trying to um build a national identity that felt German and that they sort of didn't feel European. Hmm. Um, and so part of the like fetishization of Greece actually had to do with a, a interest in being more distinctly German and, and building a myth of German uh, heritage. Which is odd, like Hellenic, the jump from Hellenic to German. Well, you know, the whole Mediterranean yeah. world has been used in really different ways for different yeah. political means, I think. Like, I think there's like this... Totally. Uh, the history professor that I was working with on this podcasting class actually has a podcast about this, if you're interested. But um, and talking about how... Uh, somehow how Israel has tried to leverage its... Um, leverage the Mediterranean to make it more appealing. I don't really understand it. Oh. But... Um, leverage. Yeah. Yeah. Like, we are a Mediterranean come here for our sun and olives and that kind of thing. Like, or like come here for the birth, birth of Western, of Western culture, even though Western culture is a construct. And so we don't really, yeah. but, you know, just sort of like trying to map that onto a place and then literally digging into the earth. You know, I'm thinking about the, those German archeological digs, like really like very literally trying to dig up a past mm-hmm. um, in pieces motivated by a sort of national impulse. It's very bizarre. That's what the, those groups are like. There's, I don't know. I mean, it's like you get into weird territory, like with, yeah, these groups trying to, I forget the name, but they'll put up posters around college campus, these alt-right guys, like, you know, mm-hmm. alt-right. Yeah. Putting up like posters of um, these Greek sculptures and saying like, yeah, it's, you get into weird Western. So, I oh, know. I mean, yeah. at the most basic, it's this sort of fetishization of a Greek body that's literally stripped of its um, bodily nature. It's stone and white and androgynous. 
and and yeah. then you know literally putting it up on a pedestal <laughs> yeah. as, as the as a yeah. celebration of a race or eth- ethnicity yeah which is um, of course absolutely yeah like no, it's disgusting and absurd, yeah. but I think that that, you know, archaeology gets motivated that way. I even remember, I mean, it's funny because you have an image of Cleopatra in the show, too. Yeah. And um, I remember reading, I, I, this is just things I remember reading. It's so not academic, but I will try and dig this up. But um, there was a fascination with Egypt and Egyptology in Germany, especially like post-World War One, when Germans were really feeling like outsiders, or outside, it's outsiders, excuse me, Um because there was an obsession with the Greek god Dionysus and his outsiderness, and he was supposedly from Egypt or like from far away. Oh, like the the outsider. Yeah, yeah. And so Egypt became this like um, oh, I might really be butchering this. Like a classicist might just be like, she is pulling this out of her ass. And the truth is, yes, I am. Um, I mean, I think. I think I read a lot of this while I was dating that like weirdo Heideggerian scholar, which I think I mentioned on this podcast before. So like this is all of that time, but your show really brought me back to that. Uh Really brought me back to like how neoclassicism gets, um, uh, is basically a myth that's put up by, uh, that's propped up by politics, by time specific politics. Um, and you know, we should say that in your show, there's the individual, um, images of neoclassical busts. Um, which feel like neoclassical, but like there's a sort of remove to them that doesn't feel like the real thing. It feels like a um, a copy of the thing is being referenced. Um, yeah, I try to pare them down into like, it's that, but of course not that. Because it's, you know, all those like translation layers kind of are also like making copies in the painting. Right. That's what I like is that there's the the material translation and then there's also just like the eroding of the thing through mythology and time Mm. and how it gets interpreted. And so there's like this nice material, you know, analog with that. And um, but then, of course, so there's these images of the individual things. There's this amazing drawing of a pipe. Um, That's an illustration. Which now I understand must have been an archaeological. It seemed like a plan or like an architectural drawing to me almost. And now I get it on graph paper and then it makes an appearance in a painting as well and then there's the image of rage against the machine <laughs> up like in front of the new york stock exchange or in federal front of hall. in front of federal hall yeah. sorry george washington so basically in front of a bunch of neoclassical architecture exactly that's right. why i included that to link it to this portrait of zach who is like who is Zach? Zach Rage is the against front the machine. Man. Zach De La Rocha. I like that you're on a first name basis with Zach. Oh god, yeah. Yeah. Well the same as Antinius. Right, right. So he's my Antinius. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, like I'm Hadrian and he's Antinius. Like I'm he's my muse. He's your muse. Is yeah. he alive? Yeah, yeah. And I so I used to draw him in high school a ton. Uh-huh. So like I came back um yeah, this summer, like, before I knew I had a show, it's like, yeah, I'm really coming back here. <laughs> <laughs> Did it feel good? You felt like you were turning home in, in a sense? Yeah, you're trying to make your, like, own naive, like, something, like, pre-art, too. Like, before I knew what art was. Yeah, and, you know, I think there's a lot of shame around Rage Against the Machine. Absolutely, yeah. Um, 
What's that about? They're really not cool because, well, depending on who you ask, they just have this, I, because they spawned the whole rap rock movement. Oh, which, they're guilt. They're the culprits. They're the culprits. So they were, <laughs> they, they did something completely. It wasn't, you know, they, they did it to a level that no one had done like guitars with rap, like at that point. So I That's actually, I wonder, cause you know, George Rush, the painter George Rush, I don't know if you know him. Yeah. He was pressed at Yale. So many people I talked to do. He, he traces that to Beck. I can see that vaguely. I mean, others were doing it too. Like, I, yeah, but Beck is doesn't have the same sort of shame for the for the. He's also not cool though either. I know, but people. I feel like Beck's sort of like um, like Weezer. Like we're okay with having like Weezer, and people are okay with having like Beck if you sort of ignore the Scientology, right? Right. I'm not sure. I'd call it shame so much as embarrassment of our adolescence. Oh, okay. Like, you know, yeah, all right. We don't need to go for shame. Yeah. 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 Like, all right. like being so, because they also get, you know, I think people associate them with like a one note kind of like bombastic. Right. Yeah. Right. Bombastic is definitely the word. Right. But like, okay. So when Trump came about, it's just, it's just like me filtering through many layers of like, you know, it's like kind of first political consciousness. If you didn't grow up like in a city, like, or around like sophisticated understandings of his, I mean, most Americans don't know history. Oh, it doesn't matter if you grew up in a city or not. Most Americans just don't know it. I right. definitely didn't have any sort of political awareness growing up in New York City. So like I was talking to my friends, like DMing, just like before I even made these artworks, I was just like DMing with friends randomly all over the world. Mm -hmm. And they're like, you know, friends in Europe, and they're like, yeah, this was, like, completely, like, you know, Howard Zinn kind of stuff, like, um, you know, the alternative history, the people's history of the United States, like, mm -hmm. you know, looking at it through, um, yeah, you know, the, the first, the Native's perspective, or just, like, stuff that we wouldn't even have known, like, from our, from education, like. Um, what's stuff like that? What is Howard Zinn like? Um, well, it's like talking about, yeah, I mean, just talking about colonial, the colonial history of the United States that oh, so completely mean, emptied out. And, I see. So yeah. you're saying the, the election made you return to that kind of... Well, it was a visceral, it wasn't like a, yeah, I mean, it, I was, so I remember, yeah, not, when I heard Inauguration Day, so I was listening on the radio, I think it was January 20th, uh -huh. whenever was, he yeah. was inaugurated. I so. so. I was teaching, I was like getting ready to go teach high school kids in Jamaica, Queens. Yeah. Who are mostly like Muslim immigrants. Yeah. And like, I'm just like, you know, it just like felt so sci-fi dystopian. Like what the fuck is happening? Like this guy is getting sworn in. Like this is so wrong. Um, and so the reason I actually chose that video, that music video that I referenced Rage Against the Machine, because there is a frame where a guy is holding a Trump for president sign. Right, really isn't that quickly. amazing? Yeah, yeah. For like a couple seconds. It's like Trump for president 2000. So it's like, it's my free associating, but it was like very visceral. So yeah, I'm like, after he like got sworn in, I'm like about to go get on the train. I'm just like, boom. Wow. High school music. Like, yeah. Because yeah, there's a song that's, yeah, it's like, fuck you, you know, like, 
It's very it's, much. Do you, have you reached out to Rage Against the Machine about that? Like, have other people besides you, we just said in the gallery, there's an article that you wrote about this music video and thinking about the city. Um, yeah, like downtown. And lower Manhattan, Manhattan post-election. Uh, post yeah, it's like pre-9-11. Um, yeah, and then post, yeah, kind of coming to see how it's changed post-election. Um, post, yeah, the how we see Trump Tower differently, how we see Wall Street differently. Yeah, I mean, isn't it, there's, gosh, I, I think that Lower Manhattan um, really changed after Occupy and the recession as well. Yeah. And the way that Occupy in some circles was really productive, organizing, and um, uh, uh, just sort of created a space for so many voices. Um on the other hand, I know a lot more like moderate Democrats, moderate oh. liberals who really, um, you know, feel like Occupy is a joke. And so there's well, a New sort York of, Times like continually knocking New York down. Times. I'm sure I didn't know that, but of course, I'm sure New York Times is yeah, like Jean uh, Belafonte. Should you just write piece after piece of how stupid and absurd Occupy was? <laughs> right, and and Zuccotti Park was really like the Lower Manhattan was really the, yeah. the place of this sort of like um, ridiculed protest that I don't think actually like you know I think actually we're still living in the. Um, that mess, that that split that happened, where yeah. some liberals oh, yeah, really totally. resented, like Alexandria Ocasio. She's you uh -huh. know an offshoot of that, and well, even Bernie too. But that's a whole mess. absolutely. But the that's way Democrats mess. and liberals are divided yeah. in um, in America right now, I think actually can really be traced to that moment. And so your painting of that that, and I I, I really. Um, I really associate that place with that moment and with that divide. And, and now there's this other layer of it being the, you know, um, uh, financial nexus of our country and a playground for Trump, for Trump's real estate and also just for what Trump symbolizes. This whole swamp. Yeah. 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 So there's this like real layering onto lower Manhattan. Um, and then also, also as a site of 9-11. You know, yeah. so, so there's just so much yeah. talk about myth and the sort of overdetermining of a place. Yeah. Um, over and over. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you picked that up from that painting. Totally. Yeah. 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 Like not many people have like spoken to me about that association necessarily. Oh, okay. But like, but I like that it's, it's there. Like. Yeah, well, I think I don't know if I would have gotten if I hadn't read that essay that you wrote, but I right, think the essay was my corollary to yeah, drawing out these lines because I think it's like fairly apparent that like the the architecture and even the pose of George Washington, it's like the mythos of the neoclassical like ideals, and, mm -hmm. you know, the the Platonic ideal of like the black and white like the pillars, et cetera. Right. And then of course now rage against the machine is a myth of protest too. And a sort of like, right. um, Hollywood version of protest. That, yeah. Entertainment. Right. It's considered entertainment, but I don't know. Yeah. At the same time, it's like a proto consciousness, proto political consciousness for like so many right, right. people that are our age, like mm -hmm. proto political, like, yeah, most people don't, get that I think probably kids growing up now get a lot of like that um 
that explicit. I mean, their lyrics, it's just like, I was going back to their first album and it's just so good. It's not, yeah. like, people think they're cheesy now and I want to advocate totally for neutral. But dude, let this be your platform. Yes. Okay. So let my like 1000 listeners, <laughs> all 1000 of us, probably 600 of them that you already know. Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 Uh, hear, hear your say. Yeah. So it's, um, after I've painted it, um, my friend James, sent me a link to this Twitter thread where some like conservative young asshole was like, he's like, um, listening back to rage against the machine. Uh, it's like what whiny unbearable lyrics, like anti-white, uh, the epitome of victimhood politics. And then, Oh, so you're like, let me dive into this. <laughs> so then it was just like this epic, like viral thread of like everybody like, wow, that is really okay. You want them to like, Oh, I guess that's why they're called rage against the machine. You want them to write like angry letters to the editor against the machine. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you, you like way to be a total square. So it's just like this whole thing of like turning it's like they just are so kind of like obtuse, like, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so then they're coming out in that way. So like people were posting that Twitter thread. Um, and then some guy like for the times he wrote like his kind of like love letter in a way where he, he kind of pull out words. He's like, yes, we're very embarrassed by our first like, you know, intense emotions like surrounding music and identity, like uh -huh. how intense emotions are wrapped up. And it's like very embarrassing, but like, here's why they're actually like a good kind of sophisticated band for that time. Like they were, they were able to go mainstream with like, um, I don't know. They're and, and, you know, they're not a cool band now, but it's just like, that's okay. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I think it's interesting to think about it in like a developmental framework, how like, when you're little, you like, um, you like to eat like, or it's like, um, you know, little kids have to eat off the kids menu because they like certain tastes. <laughs> and then like your sexual taste as a teenager is like, you know, really passionate and like, you know, oh, vanilla yeah. just for some people or just yeah. like, like there's like in different passions and appetites develop and have different stages and maybe your political passion <laughs> is one of them as well. So it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can start with Rage Against the Machine. Like you're 13, yeah. go on, you know? Oh, okay. So I was listening to one podcast that I won't mention, but they're like, yeah, these like left or yeah, these leftists, they just lack such the libidinal impulse and like the right wings, like, you know, they're, they've got like the libidinal impulse of fascism. I'm not gonna say which podcast. <laughs> really? Because I mean, that's it. Was it the podcast host saying that? No, it was like some kind of like far left, like so yeah, agitator. They're just like, yeah, like the libidinal impulse is like totally emptied out of this like Beto O'Rourke. Like it's kind of like you know, so it's just like coming back to what does that mean? What does the libidinal impulse mean? And like in that iteration, these. Those people would argue that like fascism was like sexy, like be because it's like white straight, aesthetics, like, like, I don't know. It's just like, I don't know. It's like the aesthetics of like things being in a line or like, I don't know. This like the aesthetics of power or something like, I think it's about sex and power. But I think, see, I yeah, think Antifa is yeah. sexy, like, you know? 
And like, where am I going with these like early political libidinal attachments? You know? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Early political libidinal attachments. Like bring it. Like bring it is what you have to say. It's like, I don't know. We need all, you know, cause it's like left stuff gets so, I don't know. I've been talking with a lot of people about how like, I don't know, a lot of the left conversations are getting kind of obtuse as well. Like this micro minutia of like, I don't know. It's like kind of call out culture, like kind of fighting or just like, you know, how people are so upset about like one comedian had a mm-hmm. off color joke on his Twitter, like from 20 years ago. It's like, we're kind of getting caught up in all these details, which I think are important, but it's just like, you can also do a lot of, I don't know. Well, I, I mean, I think that some of the attention to um, language uh, ends up having a really um, unintentionally conservative uh, effect. Yeah. And I hate, I hate, you know, you hate when like bros say it, but you're like, okay. Uh well, the truth is, I think people try to censor language to protect certain values, right? And, um, you know, that's what I've experienced is that, for example, a lot of my students are really interested in censoring one another, which is not something that I ever encountered except for in really extreme right rooms or like right programs. Right. And the truth is, a lot of my students with very leftist views are very interested in censoring one another, too. Um, I think to preserve certain values about yeah, safety and absolutely. inclusion and, and, but it, it is a censoring and, and we associate censoring with, I mean, I grew up associating censoring with, um, right-wing, uh, impulses, but yeah. I mean, I think what's happening now is like, like we're living through this time in the left when the left has begun to really censor itself and censor others. And I don't really know what I think of it yet, but that's what, I think that's what sort of sends my head spinning is that I notice that students with um, politics that I, I assume are aligned with mine um, don't share this value of um, free speech. They actually really want to curtail speech in an effort to preserve people's well-being is what yeah, they, and, and, and it, beca- yeah. it gets very dead end and, um, and just weird. It's weird to me because I've never, I never associated um, censorship with, with the pres- preservation of someone's well-being, you know, with the, with the safety of another individual. Um, but that seems to be where it comes from a lot. It's, you know, I would rather, I think there were some on-campus surveys that were done. I forget, maybe the Pew Foundation or something where they were saying, would you rather, um, have offensive language? Uh, would you rather allow for offensive language um, knowing that it might hurt 50% of your classmates, or would you rather censor that language knowing so that nobody can hear it? It was some sort of like scenario like that. And most of the college students said censor it so it doesn't uh, offend anybody. Yeah, it's interesting the debates we're going through. Like, I mean, it's all valuable. Like, because I think we're kind of negotiating, right now is the negotiation phase. Like, it's going to go a little too far. It's going to go. It hasn't gone far enough in a lot of ways. So many conversations with people about this. Yeah, I think the left really doesn't know what to do with this instinct. And, and that's why we're parodied so much. 
because I think people see the left sort of struggling to maintain um, the well-being of its members through through odd impulses sometimes. And there's there's even sometimes this like obsession with civility that gets put in there too oddly. Like the idea of trying to make everything civil and easy, easily digestible. Um, yeah, I think, I don't know. It's just they, the things that get co-opted so much also by like, I saw JP Morgan, an ad for JP Morgan Chase on my um, Facebook timeline. It's like, here's how you men can help women in the workplace, which is great cause, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. But, sure. uh, you know, here's how you can achieve. But it's also JP Morgan Chase, like trying to amp up their well, what image. Was, well, what was JP Morgan Chase saying that the consumer should do to help women in the workplace? Buy a I credit card? It. Oh, okay. <laughs> <That's just> like, <laughs> no, like in, in like the office politics and stuff. And it's just like, uh, you know, stuff gets co-opted so easily, but it's like, I don't know, stuff that's like, a lot of stuff can't like, I don't know. Has Occupy gotten co-opted? I don't really think so. You know? Oh, I think it has. Like, do you remember that Kendall Jenner commercial? Oh, that got yeah, yeah, yeah. I think maybe not Occupy, but protest culture. Protest culture. Protest as oh. an American, as an essentially American instinct. And then it's like, once they do the commercial, it's immediately not sexy. Not just not sexy, but it's not, it, it's not disobedient, which I guess exactly, is sexy. Exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. You know, um, because part of what people were oh, who was it? Okay, Michael Moore. Uh-huh. Love-hate relationship. Oh, really? I'm, I'm all love. I love Michael yeah. Moore. Michael Moore's wise. But remember when he said in his... I'm going to get an angry comment about that. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we will. Yeah. Remember, he had, he's like, reasons why people voted for Trump. Part of it is they just want to be bad, you know? Like, they want right. to go into the... Like, kind of saddest slash funniest point that he had was like, yeah, people just want to like put a knife and this is, they want to, they want to like make their parents angry. They want to make the, the elites angry. Is that an American thing? Is you think? I have no idea. Me neither. But I, I wonder if it's, I wonder, I wonder if that's an instinct that we have culturally to like stir it up, you know, like, fuck the, fuck the elite, fuck you snobby know-it-alls. Oh yeah. I'm yeah. going for that. I mean, I know that that is an American thing, the sort of anti-intellectual impulse, but that, that strikes me as, um, part of a larger impulse to be against the, uh, against authority in general. Yeah. Well, that's also anti-intellectual. Anti- anti-intellectualism. What were some of the other reasons why Michael Moore said people vote for Trump? That's the only one I remember. Yeah. It's an interesting one, right? Yeah. It's the one that's like, kind of nihilistic or just kind of shows like this aspect of human behavior. That's like, yeah, no, the, the fuck it, the fuck it option. Yeah. I was reading an interview with Katie Nolan last night where oh, she yeah. was like, it's still kind of one of the only interviews she gave, but she's like how, um, yeah, like boys walking down the street, one of them takes his ice cream cone and like jams it into the slot of like an ATM or coin machine. Um, it's kind of like this. Yeah destruction maybe yeah. they didn't think it was destructive though maybe those boys the trump the trump voters maybe they didn't think it was destructive but to us it's just like this like blow it up kind of gesture like uh-huh. blow up washington yeah Who knows that's hard to say it's, it's really hard to understand the psychology of a trump voter especially right now or I, I think i think it is maybe i'm just not looking at it through the right lens 
But I also kind of don't know who a Trump voter is right now. I mean, because it's been two years. And so it's, it'll be interesting to see who's still... Yeah. I mean, I suppose there's probably polls that predict that where you can find out who's still in favor of our president, who would still vote Trump. Um, and I guess some some votes in the past election were kind of symbolic tr- tr- votes for Trump um, in different states. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I guess we'll... <laughs> we'll find out. It's scary, right? We have Dan Elizabeth Warren already announced her uh Yeah. Her run. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not thrilled by that personally, but I know a lot of people maybe it's a tough one. <laughs> well, that whole thing about how Trump a lot of um they did that data analyzing of like Google searches. Oh yeah. Like um in different parts of the country that voted for Trump. I don't know if you've heard about this, but no. like um searches that searched for um people questioning like how to be more masculine like really those area you know that have like am i you know dick size not big enough or whatever like those no. google searches those parts of the country voted the no. most for trump so he was a masculinizing force and like kanye said he's like yeah i couldn't vote you know he's he, he made me feel like a man yeah I know. And that's why I'm a little bit of, I want Elizabeth Warren, but I'm like, kind of like, are we going, you know, it's really fucking sucks. We're like, you know. So would any woman scratch that subconscious impulse toward, it's toward using really your vote to, yeah. to, to, um, what's the opposite of emasculate? Masculine, I don't know. Emasculinize or to something. Masculinize, <laughs> to, to, to make your dick feel bigger. Yeah. Interesting. Like. I mean, we, we really are at a, not that I, I don't feel, Mm. you know I know I really I really do feel bad for men I think there's it's really, know, it's really I, yeah. confusing and difficult to be totally um, masculine it. in this yeah. culture masculine not even yeah. just for men but to, to be masculine is is a very confusing thing I think like what does it mean to do that well and, and well and like the sands are shifting so fast right now like I feel like it must feel like it's shifting faster for them yeah yeah. Like we're getting used to changes and we're like, woohoo. I had um I had a moment with a student who I was um and I was talking to another professor about this student and we were sort of wondering why this student couldn't uh, follow through on their work. And the professor I was working with suggested that it was some sort of compromised masculinity that that student couldn't commit and feel passionate about something and that that had to do with with uh masculine identity oh my god oh my god you hear that that's nuts whoa i turned my phone on because i wanted to hear you oh i see i better wrap it up soon okay yeah anyway anyway that's that's really complicated but it's like when whenever a guy friend or anybody i know is like kind of like willing like kind of like what do you think or having a conversation or like i don't know why this is wrong they're just like it's just like it's always like kind of conversations are always welcome, you know. It's not like we're going around condemning everybody. Oh, when men ask questions about what to do and what's I mean, yeah, I have a lot of conversations with my guy friends that and I you know, I and like I like hearing things from their side too. I yeah. Yeah, it's tricky. I think that a lot of men feel like they can't ask women. Um, because it's, it shouldn't be the, the labor of the woman to educate oh, the yeah. man, you know? Um, I don't know. Now we've got, like, no, no. I feel like we've got, like, 
I'm like, oh no, <laughs> we're ending yeah, on no, this note. No, 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 no. We don't need to end on this mo- this note. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't see that as necessarily related to your work. Or, no, or, no, or your... yeah. I'm like, feel bad. I got so far from the work. It's okay. That's all right. Was there anything that you wanna that you wanna end on in relationship to your work? Kai was saying that he was going to host some sort of discussion next week about your work. Yes. In the gallery, um, what do you think we're gonna discuss? Um. So I've invited Zoe Crossland, who I who I, who I work with, um, the anthropologist, the archaeologist. So I've asked her to like, because um, we've talked so much about archaeology through an artistic lens. Mm-hmm. I was curious how it would go if like her kind of speaking about my art through an art through an archaeological lens. <laughs> oh, um. yeah. Um, Kind of going into those angles and kind of made a, a chance to kind of make those associate associations that maybe are only in the essay kind of make those a little more kind of like go over them for the audience well, that sounds good yeah i might be in attendance cool yeah and then he also mentioned that you were going to do a show about with, with some sort of theme of work about the body or yeah um, so in berlin this spring um yeah, we're talking about doing a group show. That's exciting. Yeah, Nagel Draxler. Are you going to dig back into those slides? Yeah, I have I have a, an idea. Um, actually, there's a neoclassical fountain that I visited with friends on this trip uh, last week. And there's like these mermaids like squirting water from their boobs. Oh, nice. It's the that fountain of great Tracy, Tracy yeah. Mullis painting. It's the fountain of Neptune. So paint Neptune and then the mermaids. In separate paintings. Yeah. That sounds pretty good. Okay. Well, this was pretty good. Thank you. Thanks for coming to my apartment. Yes. Yeah. All <laughs> Thank right. you for having me. Will we have fun? There's nothing sure. The rich get rich and the poor get laid off. In the meantime, in between time, we've got fun.